0: How can I know the will of God? How do I know if the decisions that I'm making today are the decisions that I should be making that align perfectly with God's will for my life? Can I know the perfect will of God? You ever asked yourself that question? Probably like me, you may have prayed at some point, Lord, please show me your perfect will concerning this. Lord, show me exactly what I need to do. I need to know your perfect will. You ever pray that? We've all prayed that. Of course we have. Because at the heart and the desire behind all of that is, is we want to do things as believers, things that are pleasing to the Lord, certainly. But, but we know that if we are in the will of God, whatever the outcome, we know things are going to turn out okay. If we're in the bullseye of his will. Like we say that that's the best place to be, right? You've heard that before. So we want that. We desire that. But can we know for sure the perfect will of God? Can we know exactly what that is supposed to be? Because you and I have all made decisions where we've thought this is God's will. Yeah, I think think I've heard from God. I think I know this is what I'm supposed supposed to do. And we make that decision, and it's a bad one. (laughs) right? The outcome on the other side of that has... Some consequences that now we have to endure, but for sure we thought we knew that this was the will of God. We've all done that. Then you have some folks who become paralyzed with this fear that they have to know the perfect will of God before they actually make a decision or step out and do something that they need to do. They are paralyzed by this inability to make that decision because what if I miss out on God? What if I miss his perfect will completely? What if I blow it? What's going to happen then? You know, I remember one of the pastors in my early days as a young Christian coming faith in christ he would he would put this fear in us to say like if you if you're not in the one hundred percent perfect will of God and you're outside of that, whatever that is, your life is going to end up in a disastrous place. You cannot afford. To miss it no pressure right (laughs) no pressure in making decisions you got to get it 100% right well none of us get that 100% right so is that the goal I cannot move until I know 100% that this is the will of God for my life and sadly there are Christians who don't even consider the aspect of God's will and what that might be in decisions that they make they're like, well, God's really not concerned in my da- the day-to-day details of my life or these kinds of decisions because they don't seem to be anything spiritual. So why do I need to waste any time in trying to figure out what God's will is or what he has to say concerning a matter? Truth is, you and I make thousands of decisions a day. I don't think you realize that. Thousands of decisions. It's a never-ending stream of decisions from the moment you drag yourself out of bed in the morning. When you start with, do I hit the snooze? Don't Don't hit the snooze. Do I roll over or I don't? Do I get back under the covers? You know, thousands of decisions all the way till the moment we hit our head on the pillow and close our eyes to go to sleep at night. Now, some of those decisions, a lot of them, in fact, the majority of them are trivial decisions, aren't they? They really don't have any great consequence. Like decisions like, do I wear the blue shirt or do I wear the black shirt? I think I'll look nicer in the black shirt. What shoes do I wear? Or if I'm at the store, oh, they're out of my brand of toothpaste. Should I get that other brand of toothpaste, right? Oh, there's an accident. What route should I take? We make decisions like this all day long. We don't need to think too much on them. They really aren't that consequential. But we know there are much bigger decisions in life, aren't there? There are some life-altering decisions that we can make. Decisions that have a ripple effect throughout our life. They impact us. They impact others. They change the trajectory of our life. And I think we want to get those decisions right, don't we? A biggie, right? Who do we marry? Oof. Better be 100% in the perfect will of God there. I, you'd think, Right? What career path do I take? Where do I live? Where do I go to college? Should I move out of state to take a job? Or to go out of state at a school? What car should I buy? Should I buy a home? Should I homeschool my children? What church should I be a part of? There's big decisions like that in our life that we need to take and make. And it's no wonder we get into this place of like a decision fatigue in our life because some of those things are overwhelming. And there's just so many of them that, oh, do I really need to put in the work to evaluate, am I in the perfect will of God? Is this the thing that I should do? And certainly consider the consequences and take the time to do that of the more important decisions in life. Well, today as we explore Proverbs and we dig into it, we're going to see what Proverbs teaches us concerning making wise decisions. Solomon and the sages have a lot to say about this, about the application of wisdom to our decision-making and the plans we make in life. Because the application of these wisdom principles can guide your decision-making and fill you with trust in God's sovereignty, and they can fill you with peace once you've made a decision in your life. And I think we both want that. You and I want that same thing in our life. To make a decision, a wise decision, and at the end of it go, God, I trust you, and be at peace regardless of what happens, the outcome of that decision. While we're in Colossians chapter 1, we're going to read 9 and 10. And this is a wish prayer from Paul, the apostle of the Lord, to the believers there at the church at Colossae. We're just going to read verses 9 and 10. Hear the words of the Lord. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. These are the words of the Lord. Now, I want you to consider for a moment the content of what Paul is praying for here. When he says, since the moment I heard, he's talking about the news he heard from them that their great faith, you know, their faith is thriving, right? And Epaphras, their fellow minister and servant, had just come back and shared with them about their love in the Spirit and their great faith. So he goes, from the moment we heard, here's what we've been praying for. For you, And here it is, his unceasing intercession for them is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. What's he praying for there? He's praying that they would know what God wants them to do, and then that they would go do it. They could know the will of God and actually do the will of God. And in that way, they would please the Lord, they would bear good fruit, and they would grow in the knowledge of God. Well, when I read something like that, and if he's praying that for them, then we can know the will of God, can't we? Yes? Not a trick question. Can we know the will of God if Paul is praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will? Yes. But here's the catch. Can we know all of the will of God? Can we know 100% all of the perfect will of God? No. No, we we can't possibly know all of that, right? There is a secret, hidden will of God known only to Him. That He's working out all of His eternal decrees according to the purposes of His own glory. And everything that He determines to do, He's going to do. His will will prevail. But we don't know all of that. That's in His wheelhouse. And He has every right to keep that to Himself. The good news for us is that everything that He does want us to know concerning his will, he's revealed that to us. That's good news for us. And that's why Paul can pray that. You can be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you can live a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him and bear good fruit in every good work. But How do we come to know what God has revealed to us? Not a trick question either. Through his word, Right? Through the supreme full revelation that he's given to us in his word. Now I'm going to walk through four principles for wise decision making. And again, not exhaustive, but I think all of these will help us. We're going to look at uh, a wide range of scripture here. We're going to survey a lot of Proverbs as we've been doing, as we've been looking at these things in a little more thematic uh, way and addressing these themes. So we're going to be in our Bibles a lot Uh, As always, you can follow along with the online sermon notes. That's going to help you to go back and review all of these things. But here's the first principle. Not a surprise, not a shocker. Principle number one, God's Word reveals God's will. God's Word reveals God's will. And you think about it, before uh, the Word was written, before that was written for us and for our edification and knowledge uh, about the Lord, how did God speak to His people? Direct revelation, right? Think about how God spoke with Adam. We were told he walked in the cool of the garden with Adam. They had communion, they had fellowship. How did he speak to Abraham? He appeared to him, didn't he? In a vision and dreams, and there's theophanies in scripture. Moses, right? A burning bush. He hears the voice of the Lord. He goes up to the mountain, right to receive the commandments of God, and, and there's thunder and lightning and in this incredible manifestation of the display of God's presence and power, and he's hearing God speak to him directly. On and on, we see these encounters in Scripture where God, through direct revelation, has spoken to His people to give them direction and guidance and instruction and, and all of these things and commands, right. Now, By the time of the conquest of Canaan, there was a lot of God's law that had already been written down. It's called the book of the law. When you read Joshua, they talk about the book of the law. What is that? Everything Moses received from the Lord, they wrote it down. They put it in their little notes application or, you know, their tablet, right? And that was given to the people of God. But even from that time forward, God continued to speak. Even though there was some written word, God continued to speak through the prophets. Again, through direct revelation. What did they do? They would write it down so the people of God would have that. Okay? That is how God spoke. That is how God directed. This is how God enabled them to know His will. Know what they needed to do so that they would do it. Now, the ultimate revelation of God concerning His will came how? Through His Son, right? Yeah, through Jesus Christ. Look at what Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Again, through direct revelation. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The fullest disclosure of the will of God, the greatest disclosure of the will of God, and the manifestation of the will of God is through Jesus Christ. You want to know the will of God? There he is. There he is, the full disclosure manifestation of it. Of course, we know we have Christ's teaching Everything God instructed his disciples and his followers, that was captured by by the apostles. Later on, we know they wrote letters that are scripture. They are in your Bible today. So that that you have in your hand or that app that you're opening up on your smartphone is the full disclosure of the revelation of God concerning his will for you and for me and for all of humanity. We have it. It's ours. We have it there. Everything you and I need to know to please God, to make wise decisions, is contained in His Word. It's there. It's there. Now, let me, let me give to you two paragraphs from uh, our Confession of Faith, the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, concerning God's Word, because this is a great summation of what we know and believe to be true about the Word of God especially concerning this aspect about the will of God and the sufficiency of Scripture. If there's one thing that's under attack today, right, in the world, is this this trust in the sufficiency of Scripture that this is God's Word, infallible, inerrant. Everything we need to know concerning our faith, life, and practice is found there. That's under assault and attack in our world. Indeed, it's always been, but certainly we see that renewed in our day. But look at paragraph 1 of chapter 1 of the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. You'll see it on screen as well. The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. However... These demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and His will that is necessary for salvation. Therefore, the Lord was pleased at different times and in various ways to reveal Himself and to declare His will to His church. To preserve and propagate the truth better and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world. The Lord put this revelation completely in writing, therefore the holy scriptures are absolutely necessary because God's former ways of revealing his will to his people have now ceased. Now that's a mouthful, but what's the important aspect of here? How has God revealed things concerning his nature to humanity? Through the light of nature. What's the light of nature? That's the general revelation. Romans chapter 1 talks about this. We can look at the cosmos. We look at the world. We look at the things that have been made. And only a fool comes away from that and goes, there's no God. Why? Because we should know. In fact, we do know. But what do we do? We suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as Romans chapter 1 indicates to us. So God, though, makes it even Further, in a, a, a further uh, uh, clarity, brings further clarity to what he needs to reveal through special revelation. Okay, that's his word. This is everything we need to know concerning our faith, life, practice, the standard of all those things is found in God's word. And the canon of scripture is closed, there's nothing that can be added to it. Any old prophet that says, I have something that's now scripture, is a, it's a false prophet. You don't add anything to Scripture. God's former ways of revealing His will through direct revelation, that is, the authoritative word from God, that doesn't happen anymore. We already have it. We already have it. Praise God. Now look at the second uh, chapter I want you to read here, uh, paragraph 6 of chapter 1. The whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for His own glory and man's salvation, faith and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scripture. Nothing is ever to be added to the Scripture, either by new revelation of the Spirit or by human traditions. Nevertheless, we acknowledge that the inward illumination of the Spirit of God is necessary for a saving understanding of what is revealed by the Word. We recognize that some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the Church are common to human actions, and organizations, and are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian wisdom, following the general rules of the word, which must always be observed. Okay, What are the authors of the confession concerned with here? Well, again, we already have the full disclosure of the revelation of the will of God. Everything essential that we need to know is contained therein, either explicitly, like boom, Thus saith the Lord, here it is. Here's what you have to do. Some of those things are implicit, right? They're not explicit, they're implicit, right? What do we need to know? Well, God has already said something explicit. How does this other thing that I'm going through or need to do or need to know apply using that principle? And I'm going to give you an example of that shortly here concerning that. So explicitly or implicitly, it's saying, right? And the things that are special revelation, we need the Spirit of God in order to understand those things. They are spiritually discerned. Without the illumination of the spirit of God. You and I do not understand the word of God. Have you ever got to, gotten with somebody. And you're trying to teach them the scripture. And they just don't get it. You know, like you're, you're, for you it's clear as day. <laughs> for you that teaching is as clear as day. Concerning the gospel. Concerning other things the Lord instructs us there. And you're sitting there with them. And they're like I don't understand. I don't know. Well, if the Spirit doesn't give them illumination, they're not going to know. They're to be spiritually discerned, okay? And so all of those things are important. And then the, the confession here is saying that there are some things, like concerning the worship of God and government of the church, where we don't have explicit commands on what that is supposed to look like. So how do we order worship in the church? How do we govern the church? Well, in, in the absence of those explicit commands... What do we look at? The light of nature. We look at general revelation. And what? Christian wisdom. God gives us wisdom to make the decisions on what those things to look like. And that's going to be a lot of the focus for us today. Okay. This aspect of God's word reveals God's will is foundational for us to be able to make wise decisions. You will not make wise decisions apart from God's word. You just won't. You have to know God's revealed will in His Word in order to do it. All right? God's Word is where His moral will is fully revealed. It's where we learn right and wrong. It's where we learn truth from error. It's how we know what pleases the Lord. How will you know what pleases the Lord if you don't know His Word? If you don't know what He has said concerning a thing or things that we need to do, we cannot do His will. It's foundational for all wise decision making. Now, again, some explicit commands. The Ten Commandments, that's pretty explicit for you. Yes? Shall not kill. Shall not commit adultery. You shall not worship other gods. Very explicit commands in Scripture concerning what we must do. I don't ever need to pray about that. Do I ever need to pray of whether I should steal something or really contemplate a decision that would cause me to violate an explicit command of the Lord? No. If I receive a dream that is contrary to something God has explicitly stated to not do, am I going to go ahead and do it even though I think I have something from the Lord to do it? No. It's explicit. We don't pray about those things. We don't have to wrestle with those things. What is asked of us? Obedience. Obedience. The explicit commands. Again, there are implicit commands. Now I have to deduce things from these explicit commands that apply in areas that there is no clear command from the Lord. So in Corinthians, we have this lengthy discourse that Paul gives, right, about, you know, food sacrifice to idols and the exercise of our Christian liberties, right? So we don't cause a brother to stumble. Now, you and I don't have to consider this aspect of offering Eating food in front of our brother or sister that we know has been offered to idol, but we're going to exercise our Christian liberty because that doesn't cause me to stumble. My faith is not weakened. My faith is strong. Well, we don't have that particular example there, but that principle carries over into so many other areas, right? The larger principle there, the implicit principle is, don't, use your, don't flaunt your Christian liberties around a weaker brother that could cause them to stumble in their faith. Your Christian liberty that you consider to be strong gives you the ability to say no to something that you can clearly do that is not a sin to you. But if it causes your brother to stumble, love compels you to not do that so that they won't stumble in their faith. I have an explicit command in other things. I don't have an explicit command concerning, you know, many of you know, we've gone out to dinner. What is one of the first questions we ask people is, do they drink? Others, some have liberty in this area, others do not. If you have, the, you, you know, I can drink in moderation, and to me it's not a sin, but to, to someone who has come out of that and have been set free from alcohol addiction, you know, and to them it is a sin to drink, are you going to drink? No, that's not love. That's not loving at all. It's a violation of an implicit command here and not causing a brother or sister to stumble. Then we also have everything that Christ commanded us to do. Everything that Jesus taught his disciples that we need to know in the Gospels are there for us. To love each other, to pray for those who persecute us, to serve one another, to forgive others, to go directly to the brother who sins against us or offends us, to reconcile, to bless those who curse us, to, to be humble, to love our enemies, to make disciples. God's Word teaches us all those things. It gives us clear instruction in those areas. And as you and I fill our mind and fill our hearts with the Word of God and our minds are renewed, as Paul instructs us in Romans chapter 12, then we are able to discern the acceptable, perfect, and good will of God. But we're not gonna know that if our minds aren't renewed with His Word. We're not gonna know that if God's Word is not in our heart, we're not gonna be able to make those distinctions. We're not going to be able to make those determinations to know if this decision I'm making is wise and conforms to the will of God. It's sobering. Counseling people claim to be Christians at times and you're telling them something that's explicit in the word of God. And they're like trying to figure out some hack around that to resist it, like some alternative to that that they think is a better way that's going to yield a better outcome. When God has clearly said to do a thing, that's not an area you and I have any leeway. We're to obey. We're to obey. Disobedience will then have certain consequences uh, as a result of that. Okay. Many, again, don't even consider what does God think about this matter. What does God's word say about this matter? And then, again, they think they will have a positive outcome in life. Proverbs 16.25, again, there's a warning there for us. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way to death. If we're not consulting God's word, if we're not in God's word, if we don't know God's word, if we don't know his revealed will, how on earth will we know if we're on the right path? And this decision I'm making is actually going to keep me on that path of life. No. We think it's right if we don't know God's will and the end is death. Ultimately, the greatest hindrance to knowing the will of God is ignorance of the word of God. You have to know it. So That's the foundational principle. Let's look at the second principle. Where God does not command, we have freedom. Where God does not give us an explicit command, we have freedom. Freedom. We have freedom. The Bible is not going to give us a clear answer for every decision that you and I have to make in life. That's kind of obvious, right? In some of the decisions we talked about at the beginning, does the Bible give us an explicit command on what that's, how that's supposed to be? No, right? What are you supposed to wear? It's not there. Look around this room. Everyone here has freedom of choice in what? To wear, You make that decision, don't you? What movies to watch, what job to take, what career path to follow, what car to buy. Does your Bible tell you how to do that? Which one to get? Do I get the Toyota? Do I get a foreign car? Do I get an American-made car? We know the disciples drove a Honda, though, right? You all know that joke. All right, So, no, it doesn't tell us that. There's too many decisions that you and I need to make in life that God's word is not going to tell us exactly what to do. Think about whom these, these words were addressed to in An ancient people living in another time. Do you think any of them could have imagined life like it is today? And the myriad of decisions you and I need to make? They didn't have the scope of decisions that we have to make today. They didn't have the overwhelming number that you and I have today. And here we are today, and and God's Word doesn't tell us explicitly how we go about doing all these things and making all of these decisions that we have to make. These are the kinds of decisions that have a wide variety of options. Not just one. If it had just one option, then that's not a decision to make. I don't have a choice. But when there are many options and I have choice, what do I do then? Because any number of those options could be pleasing to the Lord. Any number of those options could actually be acceptable to the Lord. So to make a wise decision in any of these, well, first of all, it can't be something that I choose that is going to be in clear violation of something that God has already explicitly told me in his moral will. So we're just going to assume that. As long as what the choice I'm making does not violate his moral will, I have freedom in making the choice among the many options. God is not going to dictate that for us. If you're waiting for him to do that, you're going to be waiting a long time. The individual has the freedom to make the decision. Okay? And that's what I want to talk about in a moment because I think this is where we get hung up on the aspect of decision-making. I would hope in this room we would all say, yes, where God has explicitly given me a command, I will obey. That should be the desire of our heart, all of us. But where God has not given a command, now what? What do I do? How do I make that choice? How do I make that decision? One of the principles I am not going to talk about here today, and you will notice will be absent, but I will say a few things concerning it, is the aspect of, can God lead me to make a decision through Direct revelation, something apart from his word. Dreams, visions, uh, an angel appearing at the foot of my bed, an audible voice of the Lord, putting out a fleece and trying to determine um, if if that's God's will or not for my life. So if you're asking, can God speak that way? Can God lead us through direct revelation? Can God show us things through these other means other than through his word and the principles that we're going to talk about in God's word? Yeah, he could. But it's not normative. It's not at all. And The sad thing is when we've come to depend on that and think that that's how God speaks to us apart from God's word. No. No, because what have we we determined already? The full disclosure is here. Why do I need a dream if God's word's already told me something? Why do I need a prophet to walk up to me one day out of the blue and tell me something that God's word has already said? That's why I need to know God's word because the problem with dreams visions theophanies angelic visions or maybe hearing the voice of god is that is all subjective and if god is going to speak to you that way brothers and sisters it better be clear like i need to know then from that moment this is exactly what i must do and 99% of the time someone tells me i think god told me this in a dream or showed me this it is like mud it's not clear at all. It's subject to interpretation. They don't even know what it is. And, and it's like, well, what do you do with that? No, we're going to come back to what God's word has to say. Yeah, God can lead that way. Of course he can. He's God. He's God. But it's not scripture. And I don't depend on it. And I don't put all my stake in the, my wise decision making on something as subjective as that. I've can tell i known a lot of people over the years who are like, God told me this, God told me that. God spoke to me here, God spoke to me there. And 90% of their decisions are foolish. Well, if God told you to do a thing and you do it, and it is a catastrophic failure, was that God? It's not. We're people of the Word. We have revelation. We have God's Word. We have instruction. We have commands. We have principles. Yes, God can speak that way. Of course he can. But it's not the primary means. It's not even the secondary means. It's not even the tertiary means. Okay? God can do it, but it's not normative. And so that's why I'm not spending my time, you know, trying to work through something so subjective like that, all right? Um, That kind of direct guidance that, sadly, a lot of people want. Everyone wants that prophetic word. It's easier, right? is not essential or necessary to making wise decisions. You can make wise decisions completely without those things. All right? Amen. All right, so what does this freedom of choice look like in areas that God has not given us a command? Well, again, the freedom to make decisions where God has given no direct command exists within the boundaries of God's moral will. Let's envision a circle, right? And that circle, that outer edge of that circle, is the boundary of God's moral will. Everything God has told us concerning what we're supposed to do, his nature, his character, what pleases him, that is, that's that circle, okay? The other things, the areas where he has not given us a command, right, exist within the boundaries of his moral will. Because God's word tells us what is morally right and what conforms to his character, then I can make decisions and you can make decisions with the creaturely freedom we have, Within the confines of the boundaries of his moral will. Envision the garden scene. Think about Genesis, right? God makes man, he fashions man, he places him in the garden. What does he instruct him to do? Well, Of course, he gives him the dominion mandate and all those things. But he tells him how to eat. But more specifically, what can he eat and what can he not eat? What does he talk about? He talks about there's a tree of life. And this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He can eat of the tree of life. In fact, he can eat of all of the trees of the garden except the one. So that one tree is outside of the boundaries of God's moral will. It's it's out here. Everything else is inside the boundaries of God's moral will where Adam and Eve could eat of any tree, the fruit of any of those trees that they wanted. But did God tell them Which tree from those inside there to eat, when to eat it, what day of the week to eat that fruit, or from which tree they could go to? Did he give them any of those instructions? No, none whatsoever. They had freedom to eat whatever they wanted inside the boundaries of the revealed moral will of God. They had freedom to make that decision. God didn't make that for them. He just said, not that one. But all these go for it, and they had the ability to do that. They had real, meaningful choice and freedom that existed within the moral boundaries of God's revealed will. Let me extrapolate that now to a much bigger decision that you and I will make in life and have made in life. That is, who to marry? How do I make that decision? Like, that's a biggie, isn't it? Who am I going to spend the rest of my life with? How do I make that choice? How do I decide? Man, we just crossed 8 billion people on the planet. Half are women, half are men. Odds are pretty good. How do I choose? What does that look like? Is there only one person in all of humanity that is the perfect will of God for me? How do I make that decision? Well... Let's look at this because I want you to see that God actually gives us freedom to make this decision of who to marry. Okay, It's not an explicit command. Paul gives instructions, look here, in, uh, to those who are widowed in the church. Uh, look what he writes in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. All right, He's setting forth the reality that marriage is a lifelong commitment. The two become one. They are, it's a one-flesh union. It's not to be... Uh, dissolved, right? None of those things, but if her husband dies, he goes on to say, she is what? She's free. Yeah! Maybe she's happy about that, right? But she's free to be married, look, to whom she wishes. What? I thought the only perfect will for her was that guy that she was married to, but now he's dead. You mean there's another? Only... In the what? Only in the Lord. If she's widowed, who can she marry? Whoever she wishes. She'll look out there, there's a sea of men in the church and go, that's a nice guy over there, right? He's well-groomed, good hygiene, wears deodorant, seems to be doing okay financially. She can marry whomever she wishes, right? She has freedom to choose. However, there is a circle drawn around that freedom of choice where God's moral will has already commanded that a believer is to marry only another believer. So, who can she marry? A believer. What believer? Anyone she chooses the tall guy, the skinny guy, the chubby guy, the one with the athletic build. Or the one with the dad bod. You know? a Blue collar worker. The nerdy accountant. You know? She can marry whomever she wishes. In so much as she does not violate the explicit command of the Lord that she's only to marry a believer. Again, 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now that principle also applies in a lot of other areas. But we're going to look at it in context of who can we marry. The choice of which particular believer to marry is a matter of freedom. There's a matter of choice. Now, there are a whole lot of other criteria to consider, okay? A lot of them, okay? Because it's just because they're a believer, that's not where we stop, okay? There's aspects of the character, aspects of the life, and all these other, we need to evaluate and and look at and consider, right? So it's not like, well, we're going to tell our children on who to marry us. Just make sure they're a believer. No, no, there's a lot more that goes into that. However, again, the freedom exists only within the context of what God has already clearly defined in His moral will. And that is so important. If If we... Have this idea that certain types of these wills, there's only one. And if I miss that one, then my whole life is a wreck. That's an impossible criteria for us even to begin to contemplate and figure out. It's an unrealistic criteria for wise decision making because we can never truly know that. Now that may exist Truly in the mind and sovereign will of God, but he's not revealed that to us. And I know people say, the Lord showed me in a dream. It was her. It was him. Maybe, but when you're divorced three years later, it's kind of (laughs) weird to say that was the will of God and God spoke to you. That's not the criteria. Why? Because those are things we don't know. What God has said is, here's my moral will, and inside of that, you have freedom of choice concerning a whole lot of options here, and... There's principles to make wise decisions within that freedom. Does that make sense? Think about, should I take a job? We want to know if, should I do this? This is the will of God. Well, God doesn't tell us what job to take. He's not going to tell you that. This word doesn't speak to us that. But as long as the job we take isn't asking us to do something that violates the will of God, the moral will of God He's revealed to us, we have freedom of choice. So go work at Chick-fil-A. Sling that Jesus chicken out there to people, you know? <laughs> Do all of that. Go work as a mechanic. Go work in a trade. Go work in a in a in a, in a white-collar. It doesn't matter. You have freedom of choice in there, you know, and you, there's things you consider, right? Pay, the hours I got to work. How far away is it from, from, from my house? How long is it going to take me to get there? Is it going to utilize the, the skills I have? Is there opportunities for advancement and growth and on and on? We have... We have all of those things we need to consider on the jobs we need to take. But we also need to evaluate what, is, what are the principles that God has already revealed to us. One, sadly, one of the principles that a lot of people overlook in this aspect of what career or job that I need to take or path to a profession is, are they telling you you've got to work on Sundays. Well, is it a sin to work on Sunday? I don't think it is. But what does God tell us? To not forsake the assembling of the saints. To not forsake the fellowship of the saints, the gathering of the saints for mutual encouragement and edification. Well, when does that typically happen? On Sunday, right? I have to happen to have the conviction that it is the Lord's Day. The church does gather one day a week like this. Well, that should be a big consideration, right? So they're telling you and work on Sunday means you cannot ever come to church again that's a huge red flag, isn't it? Right? God's moral will has already revealed to us. Here's what you do as a believer. Here's what the church signifies and why it's important. So I need to make sure I'm there. So it's okay to tell your employer, hey, I can't be there Sunday morning or I can't work at Sunday at all. And I'm always encouraged when I hear people say that, yeah, I told my, I told them I, I can't be there Sunday morning you know i have to do, we should all be able to do that and then trust god in the outcome but you see we have freedom of choice in all of those things but i'm going to always come back and consider what is god revealed to me all right we can talk more about that later if you have any specific questions on that offline we can certainly talk about them all right the third principle here in freedom of choice we use wisdom we use christian wisdom And this principle is the goal of exercising our freedom of choice. When I exercise my freedom of choice, the goal is that I'm doing so in wisdom, informed by wisdom. So where God does not command something specific, we make wise decisions that are to have spiritual benefit. Now, spiritual benefit is one that acknowledges that the decision you and I are making is governed by the moral will of God and the principles of God's word. So when I say I need to make a decision that has spiritual benefit, it needs to conform to the moral will of God and the principles of His Word. And I use wisdom to discern that. I use wisdom to make that decision. We have defined all along in Proverbs here that wisdom is the skill of living rightly. So in this case, what is the skill in view here? It's the skill of wise decision making. It's the skill of evaluating the outcome of a decision that I need to make In a particular situation to determine if it's going to be spiritually profitable. Will there be gain? Will there be spiritual benefit as the best and most favorable outcome of this particular decision? And I need wisdom to figure that out. I need lots of wisdom. Now, I I, I love in the New Testament, in the writings of the apostles, there's ample examples where this is actually played out. Where they don't have an explicit command from the Lord, and they're making decisions. And those decisions are informed by a particular standard that they're looking at. I'm just going to, the scripture references are in uh, your note, the online sermon notes there. But you're going to read phrases like this in apostolic writings. Where they write, I have thought it necessary. Well, you thought it necessary, so you didn't have a clear word from the Lord? No, they thought it necessary if it seems advisable, or I have decided, right? There is freedom of choice. There was a determination, a decision that was made in the absence of a clear command from the Lord. And in Paul's exhortations there that we looked at in 1 Corinthians 7, on the principles of marriage and the counsel he gives to the unmarried and the the widows, he uses terms like good. Like, this is good. Or this is better and lastly, he even says this is even better. He's making determinations. He's expressing wisdom in looking at these particular situations and trying to determine which ones have profit. This one is better than that one. That's good, but this is even better in what you should do. Okay? Again, things not determined by God's clear command and moral will, but there's freedom uh, uh, of choice there. But these terms indicate there's a standard. They're seeking what? The highest and best good in decision-making. The best spiritual outcome. So when you and I are looking to make wise decisions, that's what you and I need to look for. What is the best and highest, most favorable spiritual outcome on the other side of this decision? And What does that look like? And that's what you and I should seek after. Ephesians 5.15 is a clear apostolic command to employ wisdom in decision-making. Paul writes, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. How are we to walk? In wisdom, not in folly. That's what the unwise do. All right, so we're going to turn now to Proverbs, and we're going to fly through this here, okay? But, but I want you to see wisdom found in Proverbs that is helpful uh, for wise decision-making. The first is obvious we've talked about a lot. Seek wisdom from God. Why? Because he's the source of all wisdom. You want wisdom? It's a founding God. And the foundation of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1 and Proverbs 9 tell that to us. Proverbs 2.6 says that the, for the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So if I want wisdom in decision making, I come to the Lord. I seek him. I seek the wisdom that he brings, the wisdom that is from above. And because wisdom comes from the Lord, then you and I need to ask him for wisdom, which is what James instructs us to do. If anyone lacks wisdom, ask. Not doubting, but believing. Because wisdom comes from God. This is the element of where prayer comes into place when we're making a decision. If you don't pray about decisions, brothers and sisters, I don't know what to tell you. That's a tough place to be, to make a decision without seeking counsel, first and foremost, from the Lord. And seeking wisdom from above to make decisions. Decisions I've made, important decisions, without seeking God's will, have not had favorable outcomes in my life. And I know we all have stories like that. So we pray for wisdom. We may need to fast. We may need to get away and, and hear from God and try to sense, what is God doing this? But not apart or divorced from The the will of God revealed in his word, but we pray and we ask God, why? Because he also gives us the spirit, right, to lead us. So we need all of that together, but it comes from God. We're to have the right heart attitude in order to make wise decisions, right? What is continually uh, admonished and exhorted in Proverbs, humility and teachableness. Without humility, without teachableness, you are going to have a tough go at life. Proverbs 9, 9, and 10, give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning, right? There's a a love of instruction and a love of correction, and the one who is wise, they receive it. They're open to being taught and instructed. There's a humility because they don't know it all. They don't see everything, right, and they receive it. There's an openness to correction, Proverbs fifteen, thirty-one and 32. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. If you don't like to listen to correction, if you're not humble and teachable and have this right posture and heart attitude, you're not going to make wise decisions in life. There's going to be people around you who love you, who care about you, and want to to bring correction or bring instruction. And if you despise it and and reprove it and, 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 and don't receive reproof, Proverbs says you're a fool. And it's not going to go well with you, right? So pay attention to that. Remember, it's all about the heart. If I want to make wise decisions, it starts with my heart. The fear of the Lord, humility, teachableness, and openness to correction. Another uh, instruction we have for wise decision-makings is don't make hasty decisions. Now again, it's not the trivial ones that are the big deal here. It's the ones that have moderate or major impact and risk in our life. We don't ever want to make those rashly or hastily or impulsively. Proverbs 19.2, desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. You won't make wise decisions if you're under the gun and under pressure to make a decision quickly without having time to process, think, seek God, what is God's will uh, revealed to us in this matter, and we rush off to do those things, those things don't end up well, right? All right Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. That's principles in a lot of areas of life, like you go to buy a car, what do you feel? from that car salesman. A lot of pressure, don't you? A lot of pressure. They're trying to sell you that thing, you know, hard and heavy, and to make a quick snap decision and why you need that, why you look so good in it, why, why that's a chick magnet, you know, and why your wife will love this car and your kids will love, and, and you're under pressure to make a decision. You should never make any decision of, of moderate or major impact that way. It's not good. It's not good, right? Proverbs tells us, slow down. Process, contemplate, think about, consider, right? Evaluate your motives. Proverbs sixteen two. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. We need to search our heart for the motivation concerning the matter in which we have to make a decision. We're to evaluate our motives against God's revealed standard. What has God said of why we should be making certain decisions and look at what's in our heart and why do we want to do that? I want to homeschool my kids. Why? Oh, I, this job is, is just too much for me. I, 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 need to, I need to go find another job. Why? We need, to, we need to discuss that. Our decisions reveal what we treasure in our heart. The motivations behind those decisions matter, brothers and sisters. If I want to make wise decisions, I need to take time to plumb the depths of my heart to see why is it that I'm doing it? Why do I want that new car? Why do I want to go into debt to get that thing or to have the latest thing or to switch jobs or whatever number of decisions we make, what's the motivation behind it? We make decisions many times based on the hidden idols of the heart. Because we've not dethroned those idols by the power of Christ and His Spirit, we make decisions that reflect there are idols there in our heart. Idols of addiction, idols of comfort, idols of approval, of wanting control, of wanting power, of wanting people to like me, and all these. I'll make decisions based out of that because there's something wrong in my heart if I don't evaluate that motive and bring that to Christ and allow the Spirit to work in me and recognize that thing, I won't make wise decisions. So I've got to test my motives in the light of the counsel of God's word and his gospel. With that, I need to seek advice and counsel, especially for big decisions, brothers and sisters. Seek counsel from mature people. Not a fool, right? We qualify that mature, wise people. Wisdom instructs us to seek out a multitude of wise counselors, Proverbs eleven four, Where there's no guidance, a people falls, but in the abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 15, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. You and I need input from other people in our life concerning decisions. Why? We all have blind spots. Neither you nor I can make a full assessment of the given outcome of a situation and a decision that you make. But you bring wise people into that equation. You bring mature people around you, and and you begin to unpack those things. They're going to show, hey, have you thought about this? And you're like, no, I didn't think about that. But they did. And now you have another aspect, another piece of knowledge, another piece of the puzzle that you can use to bring this together to make an informed and wise decision. Okay? A fool thinks they have the right assessment and don't need other counsel. That's why Proverbs 12.15 warns us, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Making decisions without counsel is dangerous. Is dangerous, brothers and sisters. Learn from past mistakes also. I love this proverb, just because of the imagery. Like a dog that returns to his vomit, Proverbs 26.11 is a fool who repeats his folly. We need to learn, because we all make mistakes, we've all made bad decisions, have you learned from it? Don't repeat it. If you already went down that path, why are you going down it again? If you already knew the outcome of that, because you did it already, and it wasn't a wise decision, it was unwise, it was foolish, and had bad consequences, I don't go back there, right? What does a dog do? He laps up his vomit. Spits it out, laps it. A fool is like that. Going back to his vomit. Going back to past mistakes. Brother, that's not wisdom. Okay, so learn from that. And super important, consider the outcome. This comes over up time and time again in Proverbs, right? We're to ponder the path of your feet. Proverbs 4.26, then all your ways will be sure and Proverbs fourteen fifteen: the simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. We need to learn to evaluate not just our motives, but also what kind of decision we are making and how we're going to exercise our freedom of choice. Think about your decisions in the light of, does this have a short-term impact or risk, and is it moderate, or is it a long-term one? Some decisions, right, I I make them, they have moderate risk, but the consequence of it is going to be short-term. But others are going to have long-term, again, like who you marry, you're stuck there. (laughs) But if you were foolish and bought a car impulsively, that's going to have a negative consequence for you, but it's not as severe, okay? But you have to work your way to get out of that now. Or it's going to have a major impact, a major risk. What, What does that mean? That means I'm evaluating, that's why I'm doing risk assessments. I'm coming out with my little list of pros and cons. That's wisdom. When you make decisions, that is super important. Think through all those things. Write those particular things out. Evaluate it. Every decision you make like that has a cost. It could be a relational cost, a financial cost. It's going to have impact in different areas of your life. It's going to have a spiritual cost. It's going to have a cost in time. We are to count the cost. We're to consider that. We're to have backup and contingency plans. Well, if this doesn't go the way I think it will, what am I going to do? How am I going to work my way out if things go south? Right? Proverbs here always gives us the indication that we are to plan with wisdom. We're to make decisions with wisdom. We're to evaluate all of these things in light of wisdom. Proverbs 13, 16. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. But look at that. You act with knowledge. The sages always commend gathering information, right? Gathering knowledge, right? Gathering input in order to make a highly informed, wise decision. Questions you always ask there is, is there a net spiritual benefit from this decision? Is there spiritual gain? Is there spiritual profit? Could this decision bring reproach on my witness for the Lord? Have You ever thought about that? If I go down this path and make this decision, what does that say about my witness for Christ? What is my testimony before unbelievers going to look like as a result of making this wisdom? Very important. Last principle, we're going to move through this here, the fourth. In every decision, we're to humbly trust God. In every decision, we humbly trust God. Look at this this triplet of Proverbs in Proverbs chapter 16. We'll look at verses 1, verse 9, and then verse 33. Verse 1, the plans of the heart belong to man. Man makes decisions, man makes plans, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Think about that. Verse 9, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Think about that. Man's heart plans his ways. Makes plans, thinks through, these are the steps I'm going to take. Cast a lot, you know what casting a lot is, right? Casting the die to see what an outcome is. That's how people made decisions. But what is it putting in light of all of that? Oh, it looks like there's freedom of choice here. But now we have the aspect, but the outcome is from the Lord's. But it's the Lord who establishes. It's the Lord who makes the determination. Proverbs here assumes God's sovereign control over all things. And God's wise providence in the outworking of his sovereign will. Our plans, our decisions are all subservient to the sovereign purposes of God. Whose will is it that ultimately prevails? It's God's. It's the Lord's will. That's the one that prevails. God accomplishes, fulfills, does everything he's determined to do according to the counsel of his will. So we're to make plans, we're to make decisions that are free, real, meaningful, within the context and confines of God's moral will. And, and at the same time, we're seeing here that, oh, but the outcome is the Lord. The establishment of the plan and the steps are of the Lord. Every decision is from the Lord. So God's absolute sovereignty and, and and human freedom and responsibility and decision making are both presented here side by side in Proverbs, just like they are in the rest of the scripture. There's nothing different here, nothing new that we see. It's a tension in scripture we see continually. God is absolutely sovereign, God is absolutely in control, God has freely determined all things according to the counsel of his will. His will comes to path. No one can thwart it. But man has responsibility, man has choice. Man has decisions that he makes. Man makes plans. All of these things are both in Scripture. It's a tension in Scripture. It's never resolved. And guess what? That's okay. That's okay. The all presented is true, and that's good enough for me, and it should be good enough for you, okay? You don't have to figure it out. If you want to figure that out? Good luck. Good luck. Jesus was crucified according to the predetermined foreknowledge and will of God, yet Who's responsible for it? Who's held accountable for it? The decisions of man, the decisions of the Pharisees, the decisions of the religious leaders to have him killed. God works all things according to to, to, to his sovereignty and and, and his will and his plan and his purposes, yet he's not the author of evil, nor can evil be ascribed to him. When man chooses to do sinful things and wicked things and evil things, how does all that work out? Not for me to worry about. Not for you to worry about, but both are true. Both are true. It works in the mind, will, and heart of God. All right? And this has been debated for centuries. Okay? Uh, They haven't figured out. Wiser people than us haven't figured out. We're not going to figure it out. We don't need to figure it out. Because to figure it out means you understand all of the decretive will of God, his eternal decrees from before the foundation of all things that he has determined. And you're saying, I get it. You don't get it. Shut up. (laughs) Look <laughs> at James four thirteen and 16, right? Look at this. This is James rebuking those who, who arrogantly make plans and decisions like, like they know what's going to happen, right? Uh, Come now, he says. He writes, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. What's he rebuking for? Here, they're making this arrogant presumption that they think they're going to be alive tomorrow. That they know that for a fact. And they know what the future is going to bring. They know the outcome of all their planning and decisions, and they can determine that themselves without even acknowledging God and acknowledging his sovereignty. What does James say? Who are you? You're like a fart in the wind. (laughs) Who are you to think that you can make that arrogant presumption without saying, if the Lord wills? Why? What's he saying here? We can make plans. We can make decisions. But God's sovereign will overrules all of our plans and decisions and things that we think we can do. That's what he's rebuking here. So how does this relate to wise decision making? Well, when you and I have made a moral and wise decision following the principles we discussed here, we humbly trust our sovereign God to work all of the details out for our good and his glory. Why? Cuz the outcome's his. I can, I can work out things in my life. I can make decisions. I can try to make wise decisions. I'm seeking God. I, I know his word. I know what his word says concerning a matter. And then I step out in faith and I just do it. I try to make the best decision I can. And I go, God, I trust you. You're sovereign. I acknowledge that it's your will that's going to prevail on the other side of this. I'm trusting you for the outcome. That you're going to work all of the details out on the other side of that. Whether it comes out like I thought it would or it just goes completely upside down from what I thought was going to happen. I'm trusting you. I trust in your sovereign will. I trust in your determination of all things. Right, And that's what matters here. The outworking of God's sovereignty touches each decision we make. Because you and I cannot know The outcome in advance of the sovereign and secret will of God. Because we're not God in our free choices. That can't be the basis for our determination of making wise decisions. I can't figure that out. God hasn't told me that in the areas of places where I have freedom of choice. So that's not even in the equation for me. I come back to these principles. I come back to his word. I use wisdom in making those choices to make the highest and best choice for God's glory right and, and that has spiritual benefit, there's a limitation to our knowledge, and because there's a limitation to our knowledge, there is a limitation in our ability to knowingly make the highest and best decision. but we still got to make it. We still have to make it right because God's sovereign will ultimately determines whether things go according to my plans and decisions, that's where I need a humble posture and attitude. And that is to govern my decision-making. God, the outcome is yours. The outcome is yours. And then I can trust him, according to Romans 8.28, that God will work all things for our good, according to what? His purposes. He will take that that I think is a wise decision. And the outcome of that decision is in his wheelhouse. And no matter the outcome of that, what does he do? He takes that, he fashions it, right? In his sovereign plan and will to work out for my good and his glory. I don't get it. I don't understand it, but he says that's what he does there. He does that, right? I can trust him for that. Solomon's wise instruction concerning this is found in Proverbs 16.3. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Commit. Your work to the Lord, your plans to the Lord, your decisions to the Lord. That word commit in the Hebrew means to roll away or to roll off. Think about that. Roll off your plans. Roll off your decisions away from you. Once you've made them, commit them to the Lord. Roll them to the Lord, right? Why? Because the outcome is His. He'll establish your steps then. He'll establish the things that that you thought you're determined. Well, His determination is the one that's the outcome because that is going to be the best one for us when our desire is God's glory and the wise decisions that we make then we don't need to worry or fret about the outcome we roll the weight of the determination of that outcome onto the Lord and away from us that's how you can be at peace that's why you can make a wise decision and just go it's in your hands God I'm not going to worry I'm not going to fret I'm not going to obsess I'm going to trust you How many of us make decisions and then we're like, you know, we're just just so nervous and anxious and fretful because we don't know the outcome of what that's going to look like. And that's in the major decisions of life. But if I trust God that he's got this, I'm his, right? It's going to work out. It's going to work out. Then my plans and decisions are established. Then Proverbs 3 is the reality. What does Solomon tell us then? Trust in the Lord. With your whole heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways and all your decisions and all your plans acknowledge Him and what He'll he do? He'll direct your paths. He'll make your paths straight. When things don't go as expected I have peace. You have peace. When things don't go as planned, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. See the good news for us in Christ, brothers and sisters, is that even Our unwise decisions cannot dislodge us from our security in Christ. Because we're going to make them. You and I are going to screw this thing up. That's guaranteed. (laughs) It's guaranteed. And even those unwise decisions, God works together into his sovereign plan to conform us to Christ. He redeems our bad decisions. He redeems our mistakes. And he can correct our path. So, we commit to making wise decisions by humbly acknowledging God's sovereignty over all of our ways. We obey in what He has clearly and explicitly commanded us to do. We use wisdom in the areas where we have freedom of choice, again, within the boundaries of God's moral will. And then we commit those decisions to the Lord. And then we're at peace. And we humbly trust in God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And what Paul prayed for the believers at Colossae is the will of God for you and me. That you and I be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit from every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God.